the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Zero, zero. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. weeks, I keep being drawn back to the story of Lazarus. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for listening. So today, we're going to both share as we look at some very crucial issues As we have told you the story of revival in Argentina, there were some very key markers in that story. One of which was a person's making a decision that they will be owned by Jesus Christ and that they will utterly and totally submit themselves to him in very real action steps concrete, not just philosophical, but actual concrete steps. I will change my behavior. I will do this because I want Jesus. When we consider the story of Lazarus, it raises for us the great dread of our heart, and that is death. Now, some people will say to me, Oh, Pastor, I don't fear death. I think because they're not in proximity to death, 
and they've not seen its ugliness worked out, they lack a fear. When someone dies, a father, a mother, as both my mother and father have died, a husband or a wife or a child, you're faced with what we in our culture call the grim reaper. That person is gone, and we have lost them from our lives. And they're not coming back. And that's excruciatingly painful. Now, Jesus, in the story of Lazarus, is told that the one he loves is sick. Mary and Martha expected Jesus to immediately come to the rescue or to speak the word of healing from where he was. They did not even begin to think that their brother was going to die because Jesus was the miracle worker. He was the Messiah. In their minds, all things were possible with Jesus. They had seen the miracles. They had personally been delivered. But the disciples, they're puzzled because Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He continues teaching and ministering where he is at for two more days. And then he said, okay, let's go back to Judea. Basically, he's saying, let's take a 40-mile hike. That's how far it was from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he's saying, okay, let's go. It's a three-day walk. They question him. They say, but Rabbi, if he's, if he's sleeping, he'll recover. Why should we go back? The Jews want to kill you. Jesus' answer is often overlooked, but very informative. In John, the 11th chapter, Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by the night that he stumbles, for he has no light. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm walking in light that you don't see. I know what I'm doing. There is a purpose for which I am delaying and now I'm ready to go it seems mysterious to the disciples it seems hopeless to Mary and Martha but Jesus knows what he is about we need to watch very carefully because this is the gospel of John and John brings to us the underbelly he brings to us the inside meaning so we find Verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. Now for the disciples, that means everything is at a total end. And now there is no reason to go to Galilee, to Judea, because he's dead. What can be done for a dead man? But Jesus said, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Now let's go to him. So the whole 
central issue of the story of Lazarus is not really about raising a dead man back to life. It's not really about resurrection. It's about believing. So we find Jesus arrives. He talks with Martha. Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Her theology takes over. She's been taught well by Jesus. But she does not yet understand the depth of what it means to believe in Jesus. She makes the confession, I believe that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God who was to come into the world. She doesn't wait to hear Jesus' response to that. Instead, she goes to call her sister. Same conversation with the sister. They are unable to comprehend the possibility that if they believe in Jesus, resurrection can take place. Verse 40. They don't want to open the grave They're afraid the stench will be too great. They don't understand that Jesus is there to bring healing, to bring resurrection power. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believed, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. They believed in a resurrection at the last day. That is, they had an intellectual agreement that this was true, but it had no relevance for the day-to-day life as they were living it. They had a personal relationship with Jesus that was separate from the belief that Jesus was trying to bring into their hearts. So Jesus prays, listen to the prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe, that they may believe that you sent me. Again, here's this word, to believe. This whole story is circulating around the issue of will you or will you not believe in me? So he calls this dead man out of the grave. Lazarus, come out. He comes out wrapped in the cloth of death. Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He was trying to teach them to believe. Now this term believe is a very common belief statement in scripture. It's used frequently by those who call themselves Christians. We'd like to go deeper today and become very specific 
about what believing actually means. This whole story of Lazarus is only about believing. So Alexandra, join us in what you have studied and what you found out about what it means to believe. Yes, and feel free to jump in at any time. So I began to really study out this subject because I noticed a lot of Christians I would meet or even people who weren't really Christians would just casually use the term believe. So I decided to really look in the scriptures because we know the requirements of salvation are to repent and to believe. And so it's really important to know what are we supposed to believe. So I started to look through the New Testament and the Old Testament, and I'll just briefly go through the, the points that we're to believe. So beginning in the New Testament, we're to believe the gospel. We're to believe on the name of Jesus. This is interesting. We're to believe on the writings of Moses and the words of Jesus. That comes from John 5:47, when Jesus said, If you don't believe the writings of Moses and the prophets, then why would you believe my words? We're to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are to believe that God sent Jesus. We are to believe that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus, so that they are one God. We are to believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's Acts 15.11. Now we get into the letters. Romans 4. We are to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Romans 6.8. We are to believe that we will live with Christ if we have died with Christ. Romans 10.9. We are to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Hebrews 11.6, we are to believe that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. The Old Testament, we find fewer instances of the word believe. We are to believe in God, 2 Chronicles. We are to believe his prophets, also 2 Chronicles. We are to believe that God is the only true God, that he is uncreated, and that no other God will ever exist. This is Isaiah 43.10. So my focus isn't to go through these points exhaustively, but I want to look at, as Ray said, I want to look at some specific scriptures and ask what it means to believe in them. So I'll take it for granted that you listening accept that the Old and the New Testament are inspired by God, that you believe that they're the word of God. And so Jesus stated that we're to believe his words, we're to believe, we also see that Jesus tells us to believe the words of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible. And in those five books is the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, we learn that we're to believe the law, future prophecies, and God's revelation of his character and nature. Then Second Chronicles explicitly states that we're to believe the prophets. So this means that we're to believe the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets, which we would think of as the New Testament writers. John, Paul, Luke, Peter, James. So in summary, we are to believe the entire Bible. 
So we can't say that we believe in Jesus and then selectively believe only certain things in the Bible. So I just want to say that again. Jesus said that we're to believe him, the law, and the prophets. So if we say we believe in Jesus, that means we have to accept the entire Bible as the word of God. And we can't just pick and choose which parts we like. And we can't say, well, I, I want to dispute that one point. So first I want to just look at what does it actually mean to believe. So to believe is simple. To believe is just to act on something as if it's true. So for example, last night I believed that it was going to rain today. So I picked out an outfit and some rain boots that I was going to wear. And then I got up this morning and I looked outside and I was like, hmm, it looks like it's clearing up. And I looked at the weather forecast and it said, no rain. So I believed that it wasn't going to rain and so I changed what I was going to wear. So instead of wearing rain boots, I wore different shoes and I wore a different outfit. Uh, we see this in every area of our lives. For example, you believe that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. So you don't stock up your house with candles and emergency flashlights and kerosene lamps. Okay, so believe and action, belief and action are always related. And this is why I won't go into this extensively, but you'll notice if you have a Bible that has um, translation notes in the columns, that a lot of times believe and obey can be translated interchangeably. And you see that in the book of Hebrews, for example. Um, so let me give you an example that kind of illustrates sort of how ridiculous it is to disconnect belief from action. So let's say that I came to you and I said, I have some milk and I put my milk on the counter and I believe that my milk is going to go bad if I don't put it in the fridge and I don't want it to go bad. But then you see that I left the milk on the counter. You probably come and say to me, didn't you say that you didn't want the milk to go bad? I'd say, yeah, I don't want the milk to go bad. And you'd say, but don't you believe that if you leave it on the counter, it'll go bad? I'd say, yes. And you'd say, well, then why don't you put it in the fridge? And then what, if, what would happen if I said to you, well, I believe the milk is in the fridge? You would probably say it's not in the fridge. It's on the counter. You can see it. Now, what would happen if I said, yes, I see that it's on the counter and it's not in the fridge, but I believe that God's grace will keep the milk as if it's in the fridge and so it won't go bad. You'd probably think I was nuts or that I was trying to make a joke. So this is the same as of someone who says they're a Christian who will say, I believe that God will send sinners to hell. And then if I were to ask you, well, do you sin? And you said, yes. And then I said, well, don't you believe God will send you to hell? If you sin and you're a sinner and you believe God sends sinners to hell, don't you believe God will send you to hell? Then you would say, no, I don't believe God will send me to hell because God's grace will keep me as if I'm not a sinner and he won't send me to hell. So that's, that's just an illustration to show that what it looks like if there's a disconnect between belief and action. So I want to hone in on a couple specific scriptures. This, like I said, this isn't exhaustive. If you read through the Bible, there's so many things. There's commands, there's promises that we are to believe and to act on. So I'm just going to touch on a few. 
So one example I want to give is healing. So in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now I was really surprised. We had a revival meeting on Monday night and I asked someone who had been healed at a, the meeting the week before. I asked him to share his testimony and he said yes. So we shared his testimony. He had been completely healed of a sexual disease and a prostate problem. He'd been going to doctors, been taking medications for I think close to a year and nothing had worked. And finally he repented, asked for prayer, and God healed him on the spot. And we thought, okay, this is great. This will encourage people to have faith. They'll believe in healing. I shared scriptures of healing during the directed prayer time. And then we asked if anyone wanted to come forward for prayer, either for healing or for salvation. So one person came forward who praised the Lord, committed his life to Christ. Uh, nobody else came forward. And then after the service, I was speaking to one man and he says to me, I should be dead right now. I said, why? He said, my blood pressure is so high. It was 258 over 160, something crazy. He said, but I've been taking these diabetes medications, and so that's helping. And this man also chews tobacco because he says it helps with the pain. And I said to him, well, why didn't you come forward for healing? He said, I don't know. I just, I guess I didn't like going in front of people. I said, you know us. We're not scary. Why wouldn't you come forward? And he just said, I don't know. And then literally less than five minutes later, I'm speaking to another man who was at the service and he starts telling me that his legs are swollen and he's been running around all these different doctors. They can't diagnose what it is. They've ruled out cancer. And I said, why didn't you come forward? He said, well... God could heal me anytime. He doesn't have to heal me if I come forward. If he wants to heal me, he'll heal me. And he's continuing to go to the doctors. And he's not asking God to heal him. This just astonished me. Because I thought, surely, healing... God didn't even... God would heal people who weren't even Christians. Who were not even righteous. Like, righteousness isn't even a requirement for healing. You're not confessing your sin. You're not humiliating yourself about atrocious things you've done that you wish you could hide. So I thought, surely people would come forward for healing. But I was shocked because I realized there's just an utter lack of belief that God heals. There's a fatalism. Fatalism is when I think the outcome is not in any way under my control and I'm going to just go along and it's going to all work out however it works out. So if you are fatalistic, you will say, if I die, I die. If I'm sick, I'm sick. Whatever will be, will be. That's not belief in Jesus. No, because Jesus gave us specific promises. We have Isaiah 53 is an incredible promise that Jesus bore our sicknesses, our infirmities, our pain, our suffering, our sorrow. He, he bore that just as much as he bore our sin. So if we think we just have to put up with what is because that's our reality 
and we don't choose to place our belief in Jesus Christ, believing that his promises are true and that he will do what he says he will do, we're just fatalistic. And it's not maturity, it's immaturity. It's not even a maturity issue, it's just an unbelief issue. It's an unbelief issue. So for me, I I personally had a cavity, and I really didn't want to get it drilled. People, I think people think it's funny that I would pray about a cavity, but the Lord really confronted me and said, well, if you won't believe me for the healing of a cavity, why do you think you would believe me for the healing of cancer or something more dramatic? So I just, I really did not want to get my tooth drilled. I, I took the position of, God made my tooth. The doctor, the dentist can't fix it. All he's going to do is drill a hole in it and then stick a filling in there that's going to have to be maintained for the rest of my life. So I was like, but God can heal it. And God healed me. And I shared my testimony. Praise the Lord. So that's the thing. Is that's it's, I didn't just passively accept that I had a cavity and say, well, I'm either going to lose the tooth or have to go to the dentist. I hear people say this all the time. They say, well, you would refuse medical treatment and die? No. Jesus gave us promises. And so if we know that we're in Jesus, we have the right to these promises. Anyway, so moving beyond healing, I pulled out several examples that deal with the issue of sin. So... In Exodus 32, verse 33, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So this is the first instance we see in scripture of this term of God blotting us out of the book because of our sin. This idea returns in Revelation 3, verses 2 through 5. This is the risen Christ speaking to the church of Sardis. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So there's a lot in this passage. So this message from Christ to the church at Sardis indicates That many in the church had gone into sin. Their works were not perfect before God. They needed to repent. They were in danger of Jesus coming on them as a thief. Unexpectedly. And of their names being blotted out of the book of life. This also echoes Jesus' warnings in Matthew 25 to backsliders and hypocrites. In contrast, there were a few in Sardis who had not defiled their garments. They were worthy. God called them worthy to walk with him in white. We might even say that they were holy as God is holy, which is what Jesus commanded in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus again urges the sinning majority to repent and be clothed in white. And if not, he will blot 
their names out of the book. So we see here a clear teaching that those in the church can have their names blotted out of the book of life, that they can be cut in half. Jesus said that he would appoint us our portion with the hypocrites and we would be cut in half and that we would be sent into everlasting damnation where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So do you believe that this is possible about your own salvation? In other words, do you believe that even if you had an incredible conversion experience, you've been born again, you knew the Lord, you had a conscious experience of the presence of God, do you believe that if you did not hold fast, that it's possible for you to be blotted out of God's book and appointed to hell for eternity? I would change that and say, if you have not held fast, do you believe that your name will be blotted out because that's what it says. Yes, so if you do believe this, you will be afraid and it will prompt you to keep your works perfect before God, as Jesus said. You'll, you'll probably feel afraid just at reading the scripture. You'll have a fear of sinning. You will be too afraid to sin. So anytime there's a temptation to sin that comes to you, if you believe the scripture, you'll be too afraid to actually indulge in that sin. So a result of believing this scripture would be that you would be vigilant against sin. Jesus said to watch unto prayer so that we don't enter into temptation. We would be diligent. If you believe this, you'll be diligent to know what your duty is as a Christian and to learn how to do it. So you won't just sit around and whatever floats into your mind or whatever happened, whatever your pastor happens to preach that Sunday, but you'll actually take active steps to seek out through scripture, through the internet. I mean, we have incredible resources. You can read like everything from the early church fathers all the way up to the present day practically online for free. So we have such an incredible wealth of resources that there's absolutely no excuse for any of us to be lost. The only reason we're lost is a lack of diligence and of disobedience. There was a woman last night that we spoke with. She had ashes on her forehead. And Alexandra, you ask her, what do the ashes represent? Remember? And she said, they represent that we come from the dust and we die and we go back into the dust. That was a pretty sobering reality. And then you ask her, what are you doing for Lent? And as the conversation moved on, she finally said that she was a Roman Catholic and that she had not taken her faith very seriously and was now at a point in her life where she knew she had to begin to read the scriptures and pray and go much deeper to find out who this Jesus is. She was beginning to believe. And what prompted that belief was the understanding that she came from dust and was returning to dust and she didn't have a lot of time. Yes, yeah, she said that she realized that she was getting older and that she was at a point in her life where she couldn't afford to neglect 
really understanding the Bible and understanding her faith. So, as I was saying, there is a Christian duty that we're required to do. So, holiness isn't just the absence of doing what is wrong, but there's certain good works that God enjoins us to do. There's certain commands that Jesus gave to us. So, for example, Jesus gave us the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So, if you believe that, you will say, okay, I accept Jesus. I accept that the gospel is my life's work. And I'm going to study. I'm going to do research. I'm going to pray about how do I actually speak to people about Jesus. How do I disciple people about Jesus? How do I pray for sinners? How do I help my brothers and sisters in their journey so that they don't fall away? Now, you said something, and you said it so quickly. I think it is absolutely key. You said, I may not quote you exactly, but you said, we must accept the gospel as our life work. Yes. What do you mean by that? So this was something that I I personally had to do this sometime after I became a Christian. So I think a lot of us, when we first become Christians, we don't understand that God does require us to make the gospel our life work. And then as we come to that understanding, it becomes necessary for us to go to the Lord and to actually verbally accept that calling and confess it. And so what that means to accept the gospel as your life work, it means you recognize that the purpose for which you were created and the reason why you exist on the earth is for God's kingdom to actually come on the earth as it is in heaven. So it's extremely active. And it means that you're not primarily concerned with vocation, with survival, with homemaking, with family, but you recognize that the number one purpose of your life is to win people to Jesus, is to help the church be holy, to be personally holy yourself, and to take up a war against sin. So to not have any tolerance, it's like a zero tolerance policy with sin in your own life, in if you are in a position in your family um, where you are in some way responsible for your family's actions, that would mean you're not allowing them to go into sin. For example, I know one couple, they're, they're rather well advanced in age. And the wife has recently become an alcoholic. And the husband took the position, well, she's an adult. She can make her own decisions. And the son was very upset about this. The son, no, he, he's an adult now, so he doesn't live with them. But, he's, but he pretty much took the position of, Dad, why aren't you going through Mom's stuff and making sure that she's not stashing alcohol because this landed her in the hospital she drank so much and took so much aspirin that she was vomiting blood and had to go to the emergency room so basically 
this is an extreme example of someone is allowing another person to basically kill themselves and drink themselves to death. That's how, that's how all sin is. It may not be that obvious right up front, but if you're allowing your family members to continue in sin, you are contributing to their death. So it's very important. And another key with this is that we don't make excuses by saying, well, only God can do it, so that means I don't have to do anything. But God gives us commands, and we are to believe that God will give us the grace necessary to do what he's asked us to do. I forget which letter it's in. It's in one of the epistles. It says that God will make us perfect unto every good work. So we believe and we trust that the grace of God is sufficient for us to actually walk in obedience to him. So just quickly, we're talking about the scripture in Revelation about the name being blotted out of the book of life. So if you don't believe this scripture, you'll probably have little or no sense of duty. You might say, well, God won't really blot me out of the book of life. That's just a warning. This is what I hear the reformed position say, is they say, well, no one who's in the book of life can ever be blotted out. That's just a warning so that we'll persevere. But if that's your attitude, then you're not really taking the warning seriously and you won't persevere. If you don't believe that God can blot you out of the book of life, you will have, you will probably put little or no effort into discovering what God's will is and to doing it. For example, you might have a vague idea that you're supposed to love others and be a good person, but you won't really consider abolishing sin in society. You won't say, okay, how can I get involved in the fight against abortion or the fight against gambling or the fight against drinking? You might um, come up with reasonings I, I fell into this trap several years ago. You might come with re come up with reasonings that say, well, as long as I'm a good mother, God will be satisfied. All I have to do is clean the house, cook for my family, love my husband and children, and maybe contribute financially if I can. God doesn't require me to do anything else. That is a fatal position. It is not true. God requires every Christian to accept the gospel as the life as their life work. If you believe that all you have to do is be a good person and help your family, you'll be going around grocery stores, you'll be going around the post office, public schools, the gym, the library, restaurants, and almost everyone around you is hellbound and you're not doing anything about it. And then it gets even bigger when we consider that millions of public school children are being taught that everything exists because of a big bang and that life evolved by, by a lightning strike in primordial soup. There's 4,000 children being aborted every day in the United States. We see the church losing ground as casinos come more and more into state legislation. We see prostitution, alcohol, drugs, masturbation, premarital sex, pornography, increases in the practice of witchcraft and the occult. 
tarot cards, meditation, yoga, Satanism. And as you know, there's just been tremendous exposures in sexual abuse in the news lately. So you might write this off with something like, well, the Lord said that the world would grow more and more wicked before the end. And so you have no concern for anybody else because you think, well, I'll just be raptured out. The Lord's going to come before there's any tribulation and he's going to rapture out the church. So I don't have to do anything about sin in the world because God said the world's just going to get worse and worse. Well, that's not true. That's an abuse of scripture and it's a neglect of the duty that God calls you to. It shows that you don't actually care about anyone else's soul. And God may even say that you hated their souls. So as a result, you would come to the final judgment and Jesus would say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You that work iniquity. Did you want to comment on anything before I continue? No, let's get very specific. Let's get very specific. I know of many instances where a pastor <clears throat> or people will come to church, sing songs of praise and worship, and then go home and sit in front of their television and drink in the utter wickedness of the world where they will come home and have fornication in their life or masturbation as you've identified it's it's countless times i see people who call themselves christians not believing the words of jesus except as a sentimental belief, but it doesn't impact their day-to-day -day life. That sentimental belief is not a true belief. It will not save you. So if you say you believe, but you don't act the way you believe, you are lying and you're considered a hypocrite. And so if you don't contribute to the cause of Christ with your money, your time, your energy, you are not being a faithful disciple of Jesus and you have not taken the gospel as your life work. Yes. It's an event that you go to. It's a pancake dinner that you go to. It's a concert you go to. It's an event. And so most churches in America have become event-centered. That's not the gospel. And that's not the church. And that's not the church. So there's one more scripture I wanted to look at. This is from Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I personally find the scripture very upsetting. It says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning for me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. 
Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned, and thou hast delivered thy soul. Part of what I find so troubling about this passage is that there are so many people who I meet every day who are wicked, as the scripture says. They are in sin, they are walking in a wicked way, and I know that God will hold me responsible for whether I have spoken to them or not and warned them. And it says, if you as a Christian if you don't speak to someone who is in sin and they die in their sin, that God will require their blood at your hand. If you speak to them about their sin and they reject you, they are still condemned, but you have delivered your own soul. And then it goes the other way. If we see a brother or a sister leave the path of righteousness and go into sin and we don't say anything to them, God holds us responsible for that person. So this is an extremely solemn requirement, and it really shows that our salvation is connected to whether or not we're diligent to warn others to turn from evil. There's another passage, I won't turn to it now, but God laments the priests. I think it's in Ezekiel or in Jeremiah because they didn't warn the people to turn from evil. And he said, if you had warned them, they would have turned from evil, but you just didn't even do it. So I think this is very sober and this will be played out in your actions if you actually believe it. So if you actually believe this passage of scripture, you will be diligent to warn people even if they get angry at you, even if it means that you lose your job, because your primary concern is that you want to stay right with God and you don't want to jeopardize your own soul through negligence. But if you don't believe this scripture, you'll probably come up with some kind of excuse, probably about election and how God will save his elect whether you do anything or not. But that's not what this passage says. So the reality, and it's a very startling reality, is that if we are simply walking in the way of the culture and our primary concern is not the gospel of Jesus and to walk with Jesus, we're in trouble, serious trouble. And we can't judge our life in Christ by the culture around us or by your pastor or by your church. Now, why do we focus on this today? We've been speaking about revival. It is crucial for you to understand 
that the desperate need for revival and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the power to walk out in reality our life in Jesus Christ. The power to testify and to witness and to minister to the lost is found in the anointing power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're walking in sin, if we're walking in our own survival and disregarding the work of the gospel, we cannot fulfill the law of Jesus Christ. We cannot be saved. The whole issue here is belief, and to believe is to obey. To obey the commands of Jesus Christ. One man, Reese Howells, as the story is told by Norman Grubb in Reese Howells, The Intercessor, he would read every night the Sermon on the Mount on his knees and pray through that Sermon on the Mount because he wanted to be very clear that he was walking in every respect in the commands of God. Now this man was working as a coal miner at the face of the coal mine, the most difficult portion. It was exhausting work. When he was finished with that work, he then went to a revival meeting in the neighborhood that he led with partners. Every night. Every night of the week. He was utterly given to the work of the gospel. And he brought many of the coal miners he worked with to the meetings. You see, when we begin to look at not the cultural Christianity, but the biblical Christianity, it is a totally different totally different proposition. It's not hard to follow Jesus. But it's hard to follow Jesus if we're also following the world. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You must serve one or the other. And so today, we want to say we're waiting on Jesus for revival because in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes the ability to live a righteous and holy life. And then in the Pentecost anointing of the Holy Spirit comes the power to walk in the giftings of the Spirit for the salvation of the lost. And I also wanted to say, as we've been speaking about revival, we've often said revival is simply a new beginning of obedience to God. So just like the story we read this past week about Irene, her conversion, she didn't have strong feelings about it, but she said, I will take the Bible as the truth and I will do what it says and I will let myself be completely owned by Jesus is very simple. And so that's what we're talking about when we come to these difficult, uncomfortable, and painful passages of Scripture. We can't just gloss over them and go on living how we've been living. If we're actually going to walk in obedience to Jesus, when we come across these passages, we have to just take an honest look and say, okay, Lord, 
I believe that this is true. Now, how do I walk it out? We're almost out of time for this broadcast today, but we would like to invite you to come next Monday at 7.30. The meeting will begin. The Revival Now meeting at the All Saints Anglican Church. You will learn a great deal more about walking in the fire of God, walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We are waiting for Jesus to pour out the fire of God in revival presence in America and in Washington. So we invite you to come. The All Saints Church is located at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. You can also listen to this message and past messages at our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we'd like to also ask if you would consider being one of those precious ones who walks with us. It's the National Prayer Chapel. Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And the services for the National Prayer Chapel are held on Sunday, beginning with prayer at 12 noon at the All Saints Anglican Church, located right next to the Hilton Memorial Chapel. Now, you can also go to our webpage, RevivalNow.Church God bless you, my brother and sister. You've been listening to Pastor Ray Greenley and my wife Alexandra. We'll talk to you soon. God bless you. We look forward to hearing from you. Great joy Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's. Dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.